Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Happy Halloween, friends. Happy Halloween. <laughs> Took for, I feel like October, for the longest time, I have a wedding at the end of October this past weekend for my cousin. And I feel like everybody in my family was like, oh, the wedding's this weekend. And I was like, it's the second week of October, you guys. It's the end of October. Like, October just had so many weeks. Like, people forgot about, like, this extra week that October had. Yeah, it felt longer. Or at least, like, I don't know. I guess because normally, like, the beginning of the school year, everything goes by so quickly. Mm-hmm. And September did. But October yeah. definitely seemed a little bit slower. I feel like it's the the time that we have the most IEPs. So either it's been a couple of months into the school year, so or, you know, even annuals. But I also feel like sometimes the teams, you know, they're thinking, and then it's the holidays. So it's like, let's get these IEPs in. Yeah. It's uh, such a weird time because we're yeah. like, in some aspects, we're like, you know, when we look at data, it's like, it hasn't even been that much time in school. Like, if you think about it from like a data perspective, like, do we have 30 full school days? And in some schools, like, we don't yet because they like started Labor Day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we're counting like school days, not calendar days. But then, yeah, we're already talking about like, oh, well, we can't get this assessment done before the holidays. So, like, we're going to do it. In- I'm already getting the January scheduling, which is wild to me because the school year just started. So, why are you know? I know. It's really weird. But this is the first year I'm like planning my schedule around like school breaks because we used to not like our kids were still in school no matter what. And like now we both are dealing with like school districts who have breaks. And yeah, my daughter has some curl off, which is genius for the teachers. But for me, I'm like, huh? Like, I just, okay, I have a Wednesday off, like, because she's going to be home. Like, yeah. And then like Like, that whole week of Thanksgiving. (laughs) Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Anyway, it's yeah. Anyway, you know, Definitely. we're excited to be here. You know, I think Halloween is always that good point of like, okay, we're getting into it, we should be making moves on the school year. And we hope if you're listening, your IEP team, hopefully you've already met by now, if you have not, you know, meet with your teams, start scheduling, because it has been, you know, a decent chunk of time to see how is your kid doing? How are the plans? Do we need to tweak anything? Even if your annual isn't due. And after today's episode, I think it'll give you a lot of insight on how you can take a different approach. And mm-hmm. you see the segue. Look at me. I'm I'm going into <laughs> the segue. So today we have Dr. Taylor Day. Thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat about this and all the things you guys are saying about IEPs I'm dealing with on the clinical side right now as well. Absolutely. Our focus will be like on the neurodivergent affirming care in the IEP. So before we get into that, can you give our listeners just a little background as to how you became Dr. Tay? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, you know, grew up with a brother who was autistic. We were 10 years apart. And so autism became part of my world at age Mm -hmm. 12. I was very aware of it and just watching my family navigate the system. And Mm -hmm. so I knew from a pretty young age that I wanted to go into this field. It was clear to me, you know, how I got there was, you know, I considered different routes, including I was in research for quite some time in academia and then just really missed that personal touch and really having impact Mm -hmm. on families. So a little over a year ago, I launched my own practice called Dr. Tay Concierge Clinical Care. And it's called that because I like to do things differently. I really Mm -hmm. like to make sure that, you know, families are being nurtured from every aspect, including the whole family. We're considering that, you know, and then there's this huge emphasis on neurodivergent affirming care as part of my practice as well. Can you take a step back for our listeners who may not be as familiar? Can you kind of give us a definition and explain a little bit about neurodivergent affirming care? Absolutely. Because I think this can really be such an important mindset shift for parents, for teachers, for anyone interacting with your child. So historically, any sort of neurodevelopmental disorders, learning disabilities, all of this were considered, you know, under, we were thinking about it through a medical model lens of, Mm -hmm. you know, where are the deficits and how does your child not meet these certain criteria? And that is still today how we diagnose it. It's under the DSM-5 on under the clinical side. And then I know you guys talk a ton on the IEP side of having those educational classifications, but there has been this recent push and shift. I mean, from my perspective, largely, I think it started with autistic adults who were not feeling heard and were feeling honestly like, you know, that they weren't enough and that people were saying like they're falling short in so many areas. And so they really focused and took the lead of like, no, our brains are wired differently and Mm -hmm. different doesn't mean that there's something flawed with us or something that needs to be fixed. And so this neurodiversity umbrella is this understanding Mm -hmm. that all brains think differently and all Mm -hmm. brains are wired differently. And, you know, neurodivergence in particular, we're usually considering some of these educational classifications or these diagnostic criteria under that, that it's a different way of thinking and learning how to really embrace and accept that. I think it there was a big push, you know, even 15, maybe 20 years ago to kind of introduce this new concept of autism, right? You know, we, we had the different, we had the puzzle piece, we had the, and this, I feel like takes it a step further of, it's not just about tolerance. It's not just about acceptance. It's really about understanding. I think to be able to understand and really normalize that not everybody's brains is, are the same, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what is even normal. And I think that people are more receptive to it because they have heard autism, ADHD, ADD, you know, it, it's not that outlier anymore. It's more so, oh, okay, this is just one other description, if you will, right? Humans love to label things. So if we're labeling it, let's at least have a better understanding so that those unique needs and challenges can be appropriately supported. And it sounds like that is what you're able to do with your approach of, you know, concierge, which I I love just anything that's, that's named concierge, right? Because it implies, (laughs) 
you know, it's kind of this one-stop shop of like, let's kind of have all your needs met, which oftentimes is Well, we're not trying to do things piecemeal, which often is what happens. We have the school team and the home team and there's Mm -hmm. not like, how many times have we gotten a client where the student gets so many services at school and at home and Mm -hmm. we ask like, are these home providers ever invited to the IEP team? Do they ever share data back and forth? And the answer is no. And like, this is mm-hmm. a kid is like 12 and had an IEP since mm-hmm. three. We're like, why is this? Why are we the first person who's mm-hmm. suggesting? And it's not on the parents because the parents don't know and understand. It's on the schools to say, you know, and granted, we have a lot of school teams that say, hey, can you sign these releases of information? But I have families that sign those releases and nothing happens. Right. No communication or they're not like, I don't know, the tie-in isn't always there. And so like, I love that that's a big part of how you work with your clients. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and kind of just you, how you approach IEP meetings or teams? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, that care coordination is such a missing piece. And, mm-hmm. you know, I focus on working with autistic children and I want to make this kind of clear from the outset. And so a lot of my examples will, will focus on that as well. But one neurodivergence is talking about so many different ways that brains are different. So if you don't have an autistic kid and you're listening to this, I hope you still find some benefit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way that I go about this still can apply apply to your child. And so what I found though on the autism care side is it was so siloed. No one was communicating with each other. And it's like, if we can have a meeting of minds Mm -hmm. come together and really collaborate, we can help this child truly, truly excel. And so what it looks like for me is I actually build care coordination into my services. So just some quick examples, you know, like it's whether I'm going to an IEP meeting, whether I'm emailing, sometimes I'm the one that's saying to parents like, hey, let's get this IEP meeting scheduled. Like your child's having these support needs that Mm -hmm. I think maybe the school isn't recognizing, you know, but it also has to do with outside, you know, therapists and all of that and coordinating there. Like, for example, if a speech therapist is introducing AAC, is that making it into the school and how we're Mm -hmm. modeling it at school? Is that the same as at home and in these outpatient settings. So I almost, I kind of call myself like a a symphony director where it's like you have all these musical instruments and it's fine tuning them together. Yeah, yeah. Which is so important because I think, you know, many people are quick to say, oh, there's a separation because home and school are such different environments. But, you know, just that example you mentioned of the AAC device, I mean, you're using communication the same at home and at school. And if we are using two different devices, two different programs, or even if we have the same program, but they're like the layouts are not the same. I mean, I've had that where we mm-hmm. notice there's two iPads and they're using Proloco to go in both settings, like just the layout of the, you're making the kid work so much harder. Why? Why are we doing that? Even though it's a different environment, many times there's still learning environment. These kiddos that have lots of therapies and even if they have like soccer or piano after school these are learning environments so yes is it this exactly the same as school no it's not but it's still a learning environment and we still should be approaching it a lot of the same ways 
Yeah. And I think if it can be this collaborative effort, right? Mm -hmm. Teachers have so much knowledge of what a child is like in the educational setting. And parents have so much knowledge of what the child's like at home. And how can, you know, one great example of this, if a child like absolutely loves Bluey, like how do we bring that into the educational environment? That's going to help motivate them. Also, the teacher then has something to connect with them on. And so I think the more we can all have the same perspective and same data, we might use it different ways, but that data is still useful. And I think that there is something to having an outsider like yourself with the medical background that is able to understand, you know, different sections of the symphony, the different instruments, if you will, because a lot of times when we step in, the parent is trying to do that. And to a certain extent, there are some parents that are able to do that, maybe because they're an OT by trade. And so then they kind of understand. But for the most part, our clients have, this is all like new to them, right? Maybe they've had a child for a while, but it's all new and they don't have the background. They probably learned some things along the way, but they're not going to be a 10 out of 10 conductor, right? As as you might be able to, right? Uh, just with coming in, reviewing everything and knowing the school team, the outside provider team, and then what you're doing. I think it's like so helpful. Well, and even sometimes I think the parent can sometimes be too close to it too. The way a child is around, especially like the mom versus how they are around other people, sometimes having that outside perspective. And sometimes we see that too, like we, especially clients that like Vicky and I have had for years. And so we know Mm -hmm. so much about the kid, even if we haven't actually been there, you know, day to day, you know, having that kind of that third perspective, the outside perspective of looking at everything is important because, Mm -hmm. and granted IEP teams really should have that person. Like we talk about like a program specialist or a coordinator, that person should be doing that. Right. But I don't think they always have the time or the knowledge or the experience or, I mean, I had an IEP a couple weeks ago where this is exactly what we were asking of the coordinator of this kit who needed, who is in high school and has all these teachers and the way that supports are being implemented was not consistent across the board. And we weren't getting consistent feedback. We weren't getting, Mm -hmm. you know, and even in the child, he felt it. And you know, I go into the IEP team and I'm explaining like exactly what you're saying about how we need someone like that. Like the parent can't do it. Parent would like to do it, but they're not in the school setting, right? Or they're not really getting the feedback. And so I'm explaining this and as I'm explaining it to the team and I'm just realizing like they're agreeing with me, but they're not even able to implement it because the time isn't allocated in the IEP. Why? You know, we shouldn't have to rely on an extra 10 minutes put into the IEP for this person to do this. But I think that sometimes, you know, if you don't have someone who's being proactive about that, and that I think a lot of teams would benefit from, um, if they don't have someone like you on their team who can really say, okay, no, I'm going to keep, you know, everyone on track. Right. I think what's interesting, two things come to mind really quick. One, you said about the parent. I say this to parents a lot. Yes, I totally agree. Sometimes parents can be too close to the situation to see it. But the other side of this is parents are the experts of their children. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so- But it's interesting because I think a lot of systems don't respect parents in that way. 
I literally say to parents all the time, I say, listen, I know this is so frustrating, but me making the call versus you making the call, they're more likely to listen to me. I got on a a call the other day, you know, with a prescribing provider and mom was like, thank you for doing that because otherwise they would have been like, well, are you sure? And they're questioning it. And it's like coming in and being like, there's an increase in anxiety and it's really impacting this child in the school setting actually, Mm -hmm. you know, and the provider was like, okay, well, what are we going to do about this? You know? So I think that's one element. And then the other side too, which kind of ties back, I do think parents themselves, if, you know, they're just learning about neurodiversity, then to show up and be the one communicating this to schools. And I think a lot of schools are not quite there yet. And I don't even blame anyone. I think it's totally. it's lack of time and resources yeah. yep. and all of that. And I know how overburdened these systems are. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. having someone too that can come and support this like neurodiversity angle, that's yeah. really hard for a parent to do often because they're usually still learning it themselves. Yeah. And often sometimes school teams too. I mean, you get a general education teacher, even an RSP teacher, and, you know, they're expected to know the ins and outs of so many different, you know, disabilities and disorders and conditions. And not every kid is the same. And so you can have someone who's been in the field for 20 years and maybe they don't have all the knowledge you know, on one thing or another, or the understanding, because if they haven't, you know, if they haven't been diving deep into a lot of this stuff, Mm -hmm. and they've been ingrained Mm -hmm. that this is the way we do things. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, you you get a diagnosis of autism. So you create goals on this, like, the first thing that comes to my mind is I had Mm -hmm. a client where, you know, her goal, parents goal was really to get the team to understand that, you know, just because her daughter had autism doesn't mean that they have to follow certain norms in creating a goal for eye contact. Because some just because that this is a deficit doesn't mean it has to be quote unquote fixed. But that understanding comes from a lot more experience that oftentimes if you have a younger teacher or you have someone who just you know, has been in the system too long, and there's a lot of new research that that sometimes can come into play. Yeah. And I think, you know, I want to say this is most providers, there's a lot of providers on the like medical and clinical side of this that don't know this as well. I can Mm -hmm. tell you, I was never trained about this in school. So it's been my own path of exploration. And one huge, huge resource of this is listening to autistic adults Mm -hmm. or listening to neurodivergent individuals as a whole. And what's Mm -hmm. really cool is social media, I think is a great resource for this, you know, but school doesn't necessarily have the capacity to be deep diving. And so I have the privilege of owning my own practice, making my own schedule, making this a priority. Mm -hmm. I would say the large majority of clinicians or educators or whoever that are informed about this, it's because they're doing it on their own time, which does show how broken our system is. And I know it could be a whole nother topic and we won't go there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, it is worth saying out loud. And I think that that is something in a a decision Amanda and I made a long time ago in terms of trying to provide support to families and and why we're a nonprofit and why we started the podcast, because it was really to start these conversations Mm -hmm. and, you know, get it out there so that, you know, one day being neurodivergent is just like, oh, you're wearing glasses. Like that technically- Most people who wear glasses, not just for the blue light, like Amanda and I, but like they need the glasses, you know, they're nearsighted, farsighted and whatnot. 
And that, you know, used to a hundred years ago be a disability, but it's so normalized, you know, that is where like you are our people, because that's what I feel like you're able to communicate, just not even from the medical perspective, but just kind of, hey, I know you guys don't have the time to do this, but let me kind of show you this global picture of the child, because to a certain extent, the IEP goals should across all settings be maintained, right? And of course, we always get, oh, home, it's always so lax and this and other thing. And it's like, no, to a certain extent, if she's able to write her name three times in school, she should be able to do that at home, right? Like, so I think, you know, having that perspective, and I love, I have to steal the symphony conductor, because it's it just, it's <laughs> So right on because yeah. when everybody is together, it's just this, hmm, everybody is just right there yeah. and it, it can yeah. be so beautiful. Yeah. I think, you know, a great example of this, just to like kind of hit it home a little bit is, okay, for example, I have a kid right now who likely actually already has been classified as autistic in the educational system. I'm doing okay. evaluation diagnostically. So okay. school's really on it. School's actually right. extremely accommodating. Okay. But what's in- interesting is parents sent me the IEP and it's literally talking about this kid's articulation goals around speech. And mm. this kid is not regulated whatsoever in mm-hmm. school. Actually has what's called the PDA profile, pathological demand avoidance. And mm-hmm. so he's going into fight or flight anytime he's at school because it's a perceived loss of autonomy. And here they are trying to work on articulation. I'm like, this kid isn't regulated and this kid isn't <laughs> engaged. And so yeah. this is a great example though. Sometimes as a parent, it can be so hard to be like, whoa, his articulation is not my priority right, right now. Right, right, right. ours correctly. You know, I'm worried about how is he being supported to regulate right. himself? Is he school? even able to access any part of his education? Yeah, that should, exactly. needs to come first because we can't get anywhere with anything else. And I think that's the thing that having that conductor or someone who's looking at it from, you know, more global holistic scale, because they're seeing like, what is their priority? Because I think team members often get lost in and parents too. Sometimes they're like, you know, this is the next thing we need to do on, you know, this area of need. And, you know, they get so bogged down to the details and, oh man, we could talk for so long with you on this because you're definitely our people in terms of, you know, just the approach, the IEP, and we'll have to have you on again to dive a little bit deeper. I know our guests will love that, but we so appreciate you coming on today. Well, thank you. And this was such a dynamic conversation. And I remember finding your podcast and just being like, this is so needed. And so thank thank you you guys for having this and serving families in this way, because navigating the IEP process or educational resources in general can be so difficult. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And Dr. K, how can people reach out to you if they have any questions? Yeah. So actually I do have a free resource. I know we're going to link it in the show notes that will kind of dive in a little bit more into this of like how you can advocate and navigate your child's educational setting and their IEP. But I'm also on Instagram at the period DR period Tay. So the Dr. Tay, I love being able to connect with people. And, you know, I think that's where I hang out primarily. I also have my own podcast as well. And then provide clinical services currently in about 40 states. So families just can reach out to me at admin at drtaylorday.com if they want to learn more. Awesome. 
Well, thank you again for joining us, everyone. We hope you had a good Halloween. Hopefully tomorrow is not a huge crash from the sugar rush tonight. And if it is, it is what it is. It Be is what it is. One day. Lots of water. Yeah, get through I it. I will see All you right. next week. Take care. Bye. Bye.